Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Sikeshida Telephone Education Series. Dr. Bill Sikeshida is a fellow of the American Academy of Optometry and the College of Optometrists in Vision Development, and Dr. Sikeshida serves as a consulting director of low vision training for Braille Institute and has lectured extensively across the country on topics of pediatric eye conditions and low vision rehabilitation. The Dr. Bill Telephone Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. Tonight, our topic is vision development, children with low vision. And thank you, Dr. Bill. As always, we really look forward to these calls and podcasts. Oh, thank you, Sue, for putting these on. I would like to thank you, Ms. Vic Burden from Airs LA, for recording these, and to all of you for just participating and attending. Tonight, it's a little bit different. We're we're starting a little bit earlier. Uh, many people have requested that we do these lectures at an earlier hour, so let others know that we are continuing these lectures, but it's going to be at 430 and uh, if any of you have requests that we even start them earlier, some have requested maybe that we started at 4 o'clock standard time Los Angeles, uh, that that is something that we will do. But today, the topic of the discussion is children with low vision. Now, it has been my pleasure for many, many years now to work with children with low vision. And this is a very interesting topic because of the fact that when I first got interested in becoming an eye doctor, I really only thought that the idea of helping a child with low vision would be to fit a child with a pair of glasses. I didn't know that vision was something that could be developed. I didn't know that you could perform exercises and do visual stimulation on young children I also wasn't aware of the fact that you could prescribe different types of low-vision devices such as telescopic glasses, computer video magnifiers, and other assistive technology to improve the vision of children. So overall, it, it has really increased in a very, very large way, and today doctors who do specialize in helping children with low vision we have so many, many more tools and techniques that we could help children to become very successful. I think back on some of the first children that I have examined, and it's really hard for me to believe because I graduated in 1987, and so we're talking about 30 years ago. And so many of these kids that I saw when they were infants, they are now grown They are now grown adults, and some of them are even parents themselves. It's just amazing. But these children who were legally blind and the parents never thought that these children would have a chance in life, these children are now extremely successful adults. I have patients who are now lawyers, accountants, CPAs, music producers, business owners, real estate developers, and many of them are so extremely wealthy that I would have never believed that they would have gained that type of success. 
I even have one patient where he has actually lost both of his eyes. Mm. His eyes had to be removed because of a cancer, and the cancer reoccurred at the age of 12. And he then called me, and he asked me, Dr. Bill, they're going to remove my eyes next month, and I'd like for you to help me. I want to stay at my private school, and I don't have any equipment to be able to read or to write or to do any of my schoolwork. Could you show me what equipment that I need, and could you show me the ways that I could still stay at my school so I could still be with my friends? And we did that, along with the help of other teachers for the visually impaired. And this young man today, he is extremely successful. He is at USC, and he is on the USC football team. Can you imagine that? He has no eyes, and he is the long snapper, the center who snaps the long balls for the field goals, and he is on the USC Trojans football team. This is just another example that shows children who have vision problems, they do succeed in life, and these are things that we all could work with in helping them to develop those skills that they need to be successful in life. So let's begin by reviewing the development of vision. The eyes are not the location of where vision takes place. We often think that we have to have eyes and that's all that is important for vision. But in reality, the eyes are two very, very complex organs but their role is to receive the light and to convert the light into electric impulses. And these electric impulses are then sent down the optic nerve and then processed within the brain. Two-thirds of your entire brain, two-thirds of the brain, is involved in the process of vision. So if we think about that, the size of two-thirds of your brain as compared to the size of your eyes, we could see that the brain is extremely important in the process of vision because it involves so much space. So much more mass is involved within the brain as compared to the eyes. So when a child is born, the eyes are generally fully developed. The eyes do not grow much after that point in time. The eyes are capable of receiving that type of information, and the eyes do not go through extensive changes. When light comes into the eyes, it first strikes the cornea, and the cornea is the clear, transparent tissue on the very front of the eye. The cornea is actually made up of five layers of cells, and it has to be coated by tears. If we didn't have tears, the cornea would die because there's no blood vessels in the cornea. So as a result, the way that the cornea gets its oxygen and its nutrients comes from the tears. Now, if a child is dehydrated or a child has problems with the eyelids, it is possible that the child may not produce enough tears. And this is when a child may develop a white cornea and a child can become blind. 
So it's very important that the newborn child gets enough nourishment and liquids so that the tears can be produced. In some cases for a newborn child, it may be that the tears don't come out properly, or it could even be that the tear ducts are blocked. In these cases, we want to use baby shampoo. We can use a little bit of baby shampoo on a clean, warm cloth, and we could then rub the margins of the eyelids. This will get all the gook out so that the tears can flow, and the tears will then allow the cornea to become nourished. Now, what the cornea also does is it then focuses the light rays from whatever the child is looking at into the pupil, and the pupil is a round opening in the center of the iris. Immediately behind the pupil is the crystalline lens, and the crystalline lens has the ability to change the focus. If the child is focusing on something far away, like across the room, the crystalline lens becomes very thin. But if the child is holding a toy in her hand at a distance of six inches, the crystalline lens becomes very thick. And by becoming thick, it's able to focus on that close distance. The light rays will then eventually focus right onto the retina, which is the innermost layer of the eye. The retina is made up of the rod cells and the cone cells, and the rod and cone cells is what allows us to receive the light signals from what we see, and the rod and cone cells convert that into electrical signals and send that information down the optic nerve. Now, the cone cells, they are responsible for our ability to see clear details. And these particular cells are located in the very center of the retina. So we could almost think of the cone cells located in the bullseye if you were looking at a dartboard. The rod cells are located around the bullseye, and they're in the periphery. So as a result, the cone cells give us our ability to see small details. They give us the ability to see colors. And they give us the ability to see under bright illumination. On the other hand, the rod cells, which are located in the periphery, they do not give us clear vision, but they give us the ability to see under dim lighting. They give us the ability to see under very, very poor contrast situations. And they also are very sensitive to motion. So if a child is born with a disease that affects the cone cells, these children may not have clear vision. They may not be able to see colors, and they may have significant difficulty adapting to very bright lights. An example of a child born with these types of problems to the cone cells would be albinism. When you see a child who has albinism, where they don't have the normal coloration of the skin, the hair, and the eyes, they don't have the cone cells that are normally developed. So these kids do not see clearly. They don't see under very bright illumination, and some of them have color vision problems. There are other types of conditions that a child may have that may affect the cone cells as well. There may be genetic conditions 
in which the cone cells simply do not develop. Now, on the other hand, there's other conditions that a child may have that affect the rod cells in the periphery. When a child is born premature, there's a condition called retinopathy of prematurity. This condition usually occurs if a child is born prior to 32 weeks gestation. The importance of this particular time period is that the rod cells and the cone cells are still developing while the child is developing in utero. But if the child is born before 32 weeks, these children's cells of the rods and cones are not completely developed, and this can affect how they see. For the child with retinopathy of prematurity, it's very common that they may have hemorrhaging in the periphery of the retina. When blood hemorrhages in the periphery of the retina, scar tissue develops. The scar tissue could pull and tear on the retina, and many times it tears the entire peripheral retina. As a result, many of the children who have retinopathy of prematurity, they don't have peripheral vision. Their vision is as though they're looking through a straw. They don't have very good night vision. They don't see things moving in their periphery. And this affects many aspects of their motor development. These kids may not want to crawl. They may not want to walk because when they stand and they try to walk, they may feel very unbalanced or they may feel that they might fall and injure themselves. So you may have recalled with many children you've seen with retinopathy of prematurity, many of them love to just lie on their backs for a very long time. It's very hard to get them off of that position. When they're lying on their back or their stomach, they feel secure because they could feel where the ground is. But if they're standing on their feet, there's less of them that feels where they are. Another example of a condition that affects the peripheral vision is retinitis pigmentosa. This is a condition in which the rod cells of the retina, they do not function normally, and these children, again, they don't see off to the sides. They're night blind, and this is a condition that's often progressive. Now, there are some cases that a child may have damage to both the cone and the rod cells. So there's many different varieties of visual conditions out there. But the fortunate thing is that we as eye doctors, we do have many things that could help the children. First of all, we now know that vitamin therapy is very important when we diagnose any of these types of problems to the eyes at a very early age. Vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, zeaxanthin, omega-3 fish oils, these are different types of nutritional supplements that are helpful for those children who have these types of retinal problems. We see situations that if the lens of the eye is clouded, that is called a cataract, that high dosages of vitamin C may be helpful. Or for the child who has a problem with the cornea, where they don't have enough tears, these types of vitamin supplements could be very helpful. On a medical level, 
We also know that there's other treatments that could be performed for all of these problems. If a child does have a cornea and they're born with a completely scarred cornea that light can't enter the eye, the technology of doing a cornea transplant is very successful. The fact that there are not a lot of blood vessels in the cornea makes it more successful for a person to receive a donor cornea. If a child has a cataract where the lens is clouded, it's very, very easy to remove that cataract so light could enter the eye and the child could see and an artificial lens could be inserted into the eye. And for children who do have retinal problems, surgical techniques can reattach a detached retina. We now know that there's studies that are studying the benefits of stem cells. Stem cells are these embryonic cells that could be injected into the eye, and these stem cells are then developed into rod and cone cells. So for a person who may have retinitis pigmentosa, or other types of retinal diseases, it's something that can be performed where stem cells can be injected. And even today, something that is even more recent is a technology where a retinal implant can be inserted into the eye. And if a person wears a pair of glasses, a pair of glasses that look like the Google glasses, they look really cool, a small camera is inserted into the nose piece and the camera sends signals to the electrical chip in the retina. The retina then sends electrical signals to the optic nerve and it is then reached by the brain and it is something that has reversed blindness. It has reversed total blindness in people with retinitis pigmentosa. This company is called Second Sight, and better yet, they have just announced the fact that they are beginning research in which they are inserting the electrical array directly into the visual cortex of the brain, the very back part of your brain where vision is received. They're going to insert an electrical chip there. So a person can still wear these Google glasses. The camera sends a signal directly to the brain, and the brain will be able to see. So this is really very, very advanced type of technology, which is going to change the lives of these children. Now, when we think about the different parts of the brain that are involved for vision, It's very important to remember that we did say two-thirds of the brain is involved in the vision, and it is actually all areas of the brain. The first part that we'll talk about is the occipital lobe in the very back, and that is where vision first takes place. The visual signals reach the occipital lobe of the brain, and the occipital brain is going to be able to see and to identify that particular object. The parietal lobe of the brain is a different region of the brain, and this area is going to control different types of movements of the eyes. So if the brain sees an object, 
and wants to move the eyes so that the central cone cells can allow the eyes to identify what it is, we have to either move our head or we move our eyes. And the parietal lobe of the brain controls how our eyes and our head will move to follow that object. We also have the temporal lobes of the brain, and the temporal lobes of the brain are involved in a lot of our memory. It's very helpful for a child to be able to remember what has been seen or to even remember a sequence of what has been seen. You know, you think about something just as simple as making peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know, you got to get the bread, you get the peanut butter, you get the jelly. But if you don't do things in the right sequence, just something as simple as that, it doesn't come out correct. I remember having a patient once, and he had a head injury to the temporal lobe of the brain. It affected the visual sequential memory. couldn't remember things in the right sequence. And it was so difficult for him to do so many things. His mother told me about the fact that he wanted to make his own sandwich. He watched her do it many times. And so he pulled out the bread, the peanut butter, and the jelly. And he got the knife, and he got the spoon. And the first thing he did was he put the jelly on the counter. He spooned the jelly and spread it on the counter. And then he got the peanut butter and put the peanut butter on top of the jelly. And then he got the bread, and he didn't know what to do with it. She said it was so, so interesting to see this, something that you would think would make no sense at all to do, but that was the sequence that he remembered. And when he saw what had happened after, he knew it wasn't the peanut butter and jelly sandwich that he wanted to make but he didn't know how to solve the problem. So this shows you again how the visual processing is a a very important part of what the child learns. Lastly, the frontal lobe of the brain, this is where executive processing occurs. This is where a lot of the high-level thinking occurs. So when a child is going to make decisions, when a child is reading, when a child is going to problem-solve, the frontal lobe is involved. The frontal lobe is also involved in what are called saccadic eye movements that are used for reading. When we shift the eye from one word to the next, to the next, we are using the frontal lobe of the brain. So if a person has suffered from an injury to the frontal lobe of the brain, many times they can't move their eyes accurately for reading. That is often the reason that these children have reading difficulties. Other times, that injury to the frontal lobe will affect how the child could perform high-level decision-making thinking. So you might try to teach your child lessons or how to be very kind and courteous or to make these proper decisions, but they may not be able to do it if there is a problem to the frontal lobe of the brain. One of the things that's extremely, extremely frustrating for many of us who work with children with seizures 
is that the seizures are stemmed from electrical activity in the frontal lobe of the brain. And when they have a seizure, some of these kids will have 20 to 30 seizures a day. That is when there's too much electrical discharge in that frontal lobe of the brain. And it really does affect a lot of thinking and development. So when we now understand the role of the eyes and the role of the brain in this process of vision, we then need to understand that vision is a developed skill. Even if at birth the child has all of these components of the brain, they have all these tissues of the eye. What next happens is what we call neuroconductivity. When the brain receives these electrical signals from the eyes, there are more and more and more connections that are made each time that occurs. You might have heard of something called a dendritic spine. What this means is that between two nerves in the brain, if we send a signal from the eye and it comes to the brain, and the brain sends a signal to another part of the brain, each time that that signal is made, there's more and more little wires or more little connections that will connect the one nerve to the next. And these additional little connections are called dendritic spines. So if you were to look at the brain of a, of a newborn child and the child has never seen anything, you could look and see that between two nerves, there might be one connection between one nerve to the next. If you then look at a child who is five years old and you look at that same connection of that one nerve to the other nerve cell body, you would then see that there's thousands of little connections between them. So as a child experiences more stimulation, more and more of these dendritic spines are created. And as there's more dendritic spines created, the visual signal reaches the brain faster, the brain processes that visual information faster, it has the ability to identify smaller details faster, it then develops the ability to see colors better, it then develops the ability to judge how close or how far an object is, or how fast or how slow is that car coming towards me, or how fast can the brain recognize that word. All of these visual skills that we take for granted are things that we didn't really have at the same adult level today. And it's because each time we receive that type of stimulation, these dendritic spines connect and there's more and more and more connections from one cell to the next to the next in the brain. It's almost like if any of you enjoy doing gardening at home. You start out and you're going to grow a carrot, for example, and you, you, you have a seed and you plant the seed. And if you were to be able to look at that seed, you're so happy when 
one little root sprouts out of it. But then later you see that there's other little fibrils all coming from the surroundings of it. And you can see that there's more and more connections that are absorbing the water and the minerals and nutrients from the soil. These are the things that are just so amazing about the way the connections between the brain works. And so when we look at the nerves, there's all of these connections. So remember, when you see a newborn child, inform the parents that all children at birth, their eyes are only focused at a distance of 8 to 16 inches. If a parent learns that their child is born with a vision impairment, they start doing things such as checking their child's eyes, and they're not eye doctors. They make the mistake of going across a room and waving their hands and trying to see if their newborn baby will look at them. Well, they won't because most all babies' eyes are focused at 8 to 16 inches. You've got to get between 8 to 16 inches from that child. Number two, newborn babies do not have color vision. If you bring all of these colorful toys and blankets and toys there, the child cannot see those colors any different than if they were looking at a black and white book. So bring black and white books. They are more stimulating. They are much more effective to use the black and white toys. We then want to go ahead and not get overly concerned if a child does not follow you as you move. It's usually not until 12 months of age that a child could coordinate the eyes so that both eyes are looking straight at you. For the first 12 months of life, it's very common that there will be certain times that one eye is crossed or the other is wandering way out there. But this is something that is normal in the development. But as a child receives more experience in moving the eyes, those connections in the brain will develop and the child will learn to move the eyes together. The child's eyes will often straighten by 12 months. By 12 months, a child will start to look at a further distance of 6 to 10 feet away. By the time a child is about 2 years, two and a half years, they're able to focus clearly at a distance of 20 feet away. When a child is closer towards three years of age, we find that they really start to develop higher levels of stereoscopic depth perception, meaning that they could use two eyes together to see 3D. They could judge how far away those steps and curbs are. You may have noticed when you're walking with some children who are younger, some kids who may be two years old, you're going to go downstairs or upstairs. They don't trust what they see, and they sort of feel and tap the step with their foot as they're going up or down each step. That is because they don't have that type of depth perception developed yet. But as their depth perception skills improve, Pretty soon you see, hey, they're just running up and down these stairs. It's because they have that level of depth perception. 
And when the child becomes four and five, this is when the thinking areas of the brain really begin to develop. This is called the visual perception, the visual processing. This is when a child is able to identify what something is. If you play with your child and you give your child that bottle, pretty soon your child is going to recognize that that bottle, just from looking at the shape of it, won't even need to touch it. That child will know that in that bottle is milk. And that child will crawl towards that bottle because the child wants that milk. And that child will then reach for the bottle and learn how to guide the hands to have that kind of eye-hand coordination. And soon, you will soon find that that child will be able to put that bottle in his or her mouth. But at first, they might grab that bottle with two hands and they stick it right in their cheek. Or they stick it up their nose. They can't get it right in their mouth at first. But within a very quick amount of time, they learn. This shows how a child's experience with looking at a bottle, it develops the motor skills for reaching, grabbing, crawling, and then feeding. When you play with your child and you do games, where you simply put your face in front of your newborn and you might do the game peekaboo. I don't know why kids like that so much, but they usually giggle when you're playing peekaboo. But this is a game that helps them to develop visual attention. They're waiting, they're anticipating for the time that you remove your hands from their eyes and they see you again. Mama is back. Mama's gone. Mama's back. Peekaboo. They understand and they begin to develop visual attention. You might keep your hands there a little bit longer and they develop longer levels of visual attention. You might want to develop their color vision. By about two to three months of age, the color vision cells are developing that sense within the brain. You could use different color toys you could use different color cloth. You could use whatever it is that you have in the house. But if you put these types of colorful toys in that area that your child plays, your child will receive all of that colorful stimulation. I like to tell parents, use the colorful plastic Easter eggs. They're a great thing. They're easy for kids to grab. You could hide other things in there. You could put chains in there so they could shake them and rattle. And there will become a time that your child will even discover how to open that egg. They'll twist it open. And this gives them the understanding that something could be hidden inside things they see. Because without that experience, they don't know that there's things inside there. So by about two to three months, incorporate activities that will develop the color vision. Once the child are beginning to sit, we want to try to encourage activities where the child will feel comfortable sitting and developing that sense of balance. We could work in a very bright room so that if there's more lighting, 
it helps a child to use peripheral vision. If we're in a very darkened room, some children may not have enough peripheral vision, and then they'll become very frightened. They'll want to lay on their back of their stomach. So let's go up in a very bright room, and let's let that child sit down. It might be easier if the child is sitting cross-legged to get the child a little bit more balanced. But let's play games while the child is in that sitting position. You could use different colored flags. You could use different types of toys. You could use those different toys they sell at Disneyland that, you know, you blow on them and they spin. All these different types of toys are available, and the child could look at them, they could reach for them, they could grab them, they could follow them. It could even be you could later place a child safely so that the child is not close to a TV or something that could fall on him and her, but let that child sit in that position as you straddle the child and you hold the child. You could watch some of these types of videos. There's many, many videos that are so visually stimulating for the development of a child's vision. Many of you might remember the baby Einstein and the baby Mozart videos. You might remember how they have empty backgrounds in most of the shots they shoot. It's just an evenly colored background. And then they have the toy up in front. This is something that is extremely helpful for kids who have neurological or cortical vision impairment. When we make the background empty, that makes it much easier for the child to visually attend. And then when the toy itself is moving, changing, or spinning, it excites the visual attention, and the child could then look at it. So you can use these types of ready-made videos, and this is going to help your child to develop much better visual attention, visual focusing. As your kids get a little bit older, use shape sorters. They are fantastic toys. Get additional lighting if needed. You might even want to paint some of these shape sorters if they're only just one color. If you paint them multiple colors, we like for you just to use the primary colors. And then let's encourage the child to start putting those shapes into those holes in that box. This is a very, very important type of tool. It's an important game because it really develops the visual portions of the brain that are involved in problem solving. Mathematics, science, all of these things are very closely related to spatial perception. Once they get better with it, you could then use other types of toys You could purchase tangram blocks. These are plastic blocks of different types of geometric shapes, and you could play games with them where you can open up a workbook and the child could place the blocks on the workbook and it will then make a dinosaur or it might make a house or other types of things. You could also do the same thing where... You might build a pattern with the blocks, 
and the child will copy your pattern of blocks. And this gives your child the ability to understand that parts will create a whole object. Parts will create a whole object. When kids cannot replicate a pattern of blocks, we usually find that they have difficulties with drawing and printing or writing. When they draw or print, they simply are adding lines and curves together to create this final product. And they need to know the basis of it by understanding how to assemble these different shapes. So when you do these kinds of activities, you are actually preparing them later for drawing and for printing. And as they become older, you could then start doing visual motor tasks with a pencil, and they could begin to do tracing. And later in, we could do coloring, and we could do so many other types of activities that will develop their visual perception skills. So all in all, vision is a learned and a developed skill And the activities that you perform with the child early on is going to affect the development of vision of these children. But we know that the child who has low vision may often have interesting behaviors. They may not do what other children do because they don't see properly. They may not be willing to go outside and play. That's because they don't feel comfortable guiding their body when they walk or run. We can perform these games that will make it more comfortable for them to have that kind of balance, that ability to run and to jump. We may find that some kids are not motivated to get up off the floor. They want to stay on the floor, and that's because they don't have the visual confidence to know where they are in their space. So we want to do those games that we just recommended to help them to develop that sense of awareness and space. We may find that there are some kids who sort of just self-stimulate. Is this child autistic? Or is this child poking his eye because there's something related to the vision? Children with low vision frequently will self-stimulate. They'll poke their eye right in their eye socket. And when they do that, they see shimmering lights. It's a self-stimulatory event. It's like they have their own video game right in their own eyeball. And these kids find that to be more enjoyable than doing other things out there. So when you do see the child who has these kinds of interesting behaviors, the most important thing to do is to make an appointment with the developmental eye doctor who understands these behaviors. You want a doctor who's going to spend a minimum of 45 minutes with your child, preferably an hour to hour and a half. These types of low-vision doctors can develop a treatment program for your child to develop more and more vision. And if you need help with any of these types of referrals, Sue Strafasi and myself 
we'd be happy to find doctors in your area throughout the country who can do that. So if any of you uh, do have those questions, you could send me an email to Dr. Bill Foundation. That's D-R-B-I-L-L Foundation at gmail.com, and I'd be able to help you. So we have about five minutes. Do any of you have any questions that you'd like to ask? If so, unmute your phone by pressing star six, and we'll take your question. Okay. I guess that we're finished. <laughs> I, think I think you covered it all, Dr. Bill. It was great. Yes. We'd like to thank Dick Bird, and, and uh, I want all of you to stay on the line because I want to ask you a question. Again, we'll see you next month when we talk about what's the subject, Sue? Next month, uh, the topic is why movement plays an important role in vision development. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. That'll be a good one. Good. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but what we want to know for you, would you be able to tell us, is it more convenient if we were to start at four so that you could end by five, like if you're doing this on maybe your work hour and your work is allowing you to have this? Or is 4.30 better for some of you? Can some of you uh, answer that for us, please? Mm -hmm. Or I guess, you know, the other thing is, Dr. Bill, maybe they could email. Um, anybody who has a, any preference could email it to us, too. Okay, that'll be great. Yeah, I, I would really thank you so much for your input. If you could... Email us to see if it would be 4 or 4.30 would be more preferable to you. Um, that would be great, and uh, we will try to accommodate every, as many as we can and figure out, figure out a good time. Sue, I'm sorry. Hi, it's Elva. Hi. Hi, Hi Bill. Hi. Sorry, I joined a little bit late, so I didn't, I didn't want to interrupt. I had to um, mute my phone, so... But, oh. um, I, so I, you know, the time is, I'm glad we kind of changed the time. I think it works out better. I just think it might be more word of mouth that the time has changed. I'm wondering right. um, for most people, because it does make sense that I would think that most professionals would be able to, um, you know, because it is work-related, to tag this on to the end of their day. So I think it's I think it's a great idea. I think we might just need to get the word out more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. we just sent the first series of emails. So yeah, we just I think we just need to. That's a good point. I'll just get more. If you can encourage encourage families and individuals to call in another professional. Right. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. So you think maybe four to five, Alva, so that it could just be during the work day. I, I mean, I think I think for most people that would work, and I think most people, um, you know, the workplace would allow them to do that, given that it's you know um, work related and and educational. Um, I don't know. I, I you know I, I'm not sure, but I I would think. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's that's what Dick Burden thought that would be good. So, you know, whatever works for everybody else. We just thought we would. It's kind of an experiment right now. Yeah. Okay, thank you. 